Do you think, Nicole, the view has changed a little bit in Bloomington? Definitely. I wouldn't even say it's a little bit. I would say it's pretty significant from when I was younger. I can't even count the last time that somebody came up to me and said something just flat out rude, which is a pretty big change from when I was like 15. (laughs) Snow Files, Season 3. Snow and Tell Zoom Audio, January 22nd, 2022. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. Jamie really enjoyed participating in this great Zoom discussion Saturday afternoon with family and supporters. We talked about alternative suspects, Jamie's case updates, 8,000 missing documents, and Ray, who will now forever be known as the Foya Sensei. We hope you enjoy our first Snow and Tell Zoom as much as we did. So we've been doing this whole season on the alternative suspect. So we were wondering what y'all thought. We started out with Isaac Gaston, and he was the one that looked very much like the composite. And then we had Jeff Miller and Jeff Durbin. So the Jeffs, recall those were the armed robbers who went to prison around the same time and were doing crimes around the same time. And then the last one we did was Maurice Johnson, and he did the Kroger armed robbery and shot the guy twice in the chest. So that was very similar. Did y'all have anybody that you think is higher on the list than somebody else? Or do you think we're headed down the wrong road or what? What do y'all think about that? I thought that at least the suspects from the other robberies were present in the narrative about Jamie. They took bits and pieces from uh, the other cases, the other robbery cases, and try to put it into Jamie's case, like wanting cigarettes or having a getaway driver and stuff like that. I thought that they were at least inspired <laughs> by the other robberies and that they used that. So obviously they had looked into that. So do you think they were trying to wrap that around? Yeah, I I think they had, they had reasons to suspect all the other suspects and nothing to tie Jamie to the crime. So they used whatever they had from the other suspects and used it against Jamie, which is why it turned out so Frankenstein and nonsensical. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I kind of like that perspective too. I, I think for me personally, what I'm hoping to get everybody to take away from the alternative suspects is the fact that, you know, before they came and arrested me, they really didn't clear any of these people, you know, in the normal. And and I think Ray can give you a better uh, idea of, you know, how you you fully and accurately clear a suspect before you go out and arrest somebody. I mean, these guys were much better suspects, in my opinion. And they just weren't ever cleared. That's my perspective on that, on the suspects part of the 
Charneville. They never went back and looked at them. Initially in 1991-92, when it was kind of fresh, Johnson was out there doing a robbery. We never found anything where they talked to him or even brought him in for questioning, anything like that. And then come 1998, when they reopened the investigation and really kicked it in, these people weren't even, weren't even a thought. They didn't even consider them. They didn't, they didn't talk about them. They didn't compare them, bring them into discussions, anything. And that's the big problem. Besides not clearing them, you know, we don't know how they cleared them. They could have just, as we, as we talked about, they said they had a composite of a white guy and, then, you know, Johnson's black, so he's eliminated. Comment on what you're saying, Ray, is when they reopened the investigation in 1998, they really weren't reopening the investigation. When they got started in, in 1998, it was specifically to build a case against me and, at, at all costs and get me arrested for the case. I mean, they really weren't investigating anything. It was, let's weed out anything else and any other name and any other evidence that has anything to do with anybody else and let's just focus straight on Jamie and that's it. I mean, that's what they did. I think personally, you know, that's what makes it so disgustingly bogus. I agree. Look at the reports. Look who they visited. Look who they talked to. You were obviously targeted and that was their yeah. focus. And I know that either Katz or Marcus said that they received a new tip that sparked the investigation into, you know, whatever. And you know as well as I do after going through all the paperwork, there was no new tip. There was nothing. They say there's a tip. They say there's a report. And that we don't have. Maybe we'll see it in the 8,000 pages, Ray, but I think if there was some sort of a new tip that pointed the finger at me, we would have seen it at trial. We wouldn't be seeing it now, 20 years later. So I think that's just BS. And you're right, they didn't call that tipster as a witness. And when I spoke to him down in Florida, his story to me is way different than the way Barks portrayed it in his report. And we don't have Katz's supplemental report. So that's all up in the air. Melinda, are you teaching, uh, are you teaching about this case in your coursework this semester? Yes, I plan to. I haven't gotten to it yet, but it's coming. Are you uh, able to keep up with the podcast or do you have any thoughts? I'm up to date. I still think that the Jeffs, the two Jeffs are my top suspects, I think. And I can't keep, I can't keep them straight, which is which. But I just think the fact that the one confessed to his wife, which one was that? Jeff? Miller. Miller. Jeff Miller. And then which one, wasn't it one of the Jeffs that went to talk to Jamie in prison and say, I want to see who is serving for my crime? Was that one of the Jeffs? That was Durbin. Those two are on my top, top of the list, I think. That just seems, I don't know, too suspicious for me. But the Isaac sure looks like the composite sketch. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They were definitely out committing numerous armed robbers. So mm -hmm. I've always believed that, and I'll always believe it until I'm proven wrong, but I've, I've always believed that whoever committed the crime at Smart Gas Station is someone who that's what they, that's what they do. That's their thing. Robberies. It takes a different kind of person to commit those sorts of crimes. 
I always thought that Maurice was a good candidate for this crime as well. You know, we profiled him, I guess, most recently, and he was just such a violent, a violent offender. And the fact that he shot that kid, basically, twice in the chest, really had me thinking that he was a good candidate. I think because he was, they didn't say that it was a black man. And they released those composites, as Jamie says, that they weren't even looking at him. They didn't even uh, clear they him. They wrote him off. Yeah, they wrote him off. If I had to pick somebody, that would probably be my number one suspect, too. We know that we really don't have an eyewitness. So we don't know. I don't think we have an eyewitness at all. So, at so it station? could be, yeah. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think, I think his MO is matching up just as great as anybody's, and he's impulsive and all that. Yeah. But they all were, I guess. That's what. Yeah. What do you think, Leslie? Do you have a top suspect? I don't think we've ever even discussed a top suspect, in your opinion. Um, the only thing I think about with the Jeffs is that it was completely different timing, wasn't it? Like. August when they were doing it and the Clark was April so I don't know I always got the feeling that they got caught for the crimes that they did but um yeah Maurice Johnson I think the forensics matched perfectly really good and I do agree with what Ellen said they have no idea what happened at the Clark station but they know what happened on all these other cases so they just tried to pick what they could make sense that fit from the other ones to connect it to a theory of the Clark station. It's so evident. And I know also, Leslie, you've read a lot of the, all of the rooms of documents that we have. And you could see it's so distinctive that all of these people that they were going through in the beginning, in the beginning, you know, they had all of these different people that they were looking at, including all these people in Laura. And then in 1998, when Katz and Barkas took over, it was just, Jamie, that's it. That's so telling to me. On the next episode, we're going to talk about the people that they did pick out and all of these leads that they had. And even Katz, in many of the interviews, said that he was just going to go back and you know, we're interviewing everybody. He told people that all the time. We're interviewing everybody, but they didn't. They only interviewed people that were linked to Jamie, period. That's it. Then he didn't have the chin scar. He didn't have the earring, but yet they cleared all of these people because they didn't have a chin scar and an earring, but they didn't go back and talk to them. What's so convoluted to me, the way they did that, and it was totally targeted. And I just wonder if there's a way to, to prove that in court. You know what I mean? Yeah. Another sign that I think showed that they weren't trying to clear the cold case or find out what happened was that they didn't test the evidence. Like there's still evidence that wasn't tested and they didn't go back to that. They went straight for composites or witness testimony. And if they really went back to solve the case, wouldn't it have started with the crime scene and the evidence? That makes sense. What do you think, Melinda? You're doing the forensic stuff. 
that's where I want to go. All I want is for this evidence to be tested. That's what I'm like. Let's hurry up and do this. I don't. I think that's the only way that this is going to get figured out is to test the evidence and hope <laughs> that they get something from it. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if your view will change if they don't get anything from it because you know that the states mm -hmm. all well. It was a gas station. Well, there were hundred people in and out. Well, there were this. Well, there were that. I mean, there's no guarantee. Right. There's just no guarantee that that will be there. Well, I'm hoping that there was contact because they have Bill's shirt, correct? Yeah. I'm hoping there was contact between the suspect and Bill and that they can use that fancy MVAC to suck the DNA off and then be able to test the DNA like that. That's what I'm hoping for using that MVAC machine to take the sample. Yeah, I agree, I kind of like that too. I've uh, argued with a lot of people about this. Nobody really knows the truth, but I'm, I have to believe that there was a struggle in the gas station. I, I have to believe that there was a struggle and that the person's DNA is somewhere on building blows. Mm -hmm. So we're not gonna know until we test them. But listen, before I run out of time, I got three questions I wanna ask everybody. One, I want you guys to tell us what it is that you've liked the most about the podcast, what you've uh, enjoyed the most, what you haven't, you know, I mean, whatever it is, I mean, if there's something that you're like, yeah, I don't really like that, you know, or something that you, you're not really a fan of, you know, we want to hear that too. And if anybody has any ideas of how we can boost listeners. We'd love to have the feedback. Ellen, I know you were writing that down. What do you, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, I really, I really like what I really like about this pod podcast, and I listen to a lot, is that you're so straight to the point, and it's great. It's not with all the storytelling and the ooh, is it this? Is it this? you know? I don't like that. So, and I really appreciate you just doing it without an end game. Just let's get the facts out there. That's the end game or that's the purpose so that it's on the record. I really, really like that. And I really appreciate you going through all the, all the foyers that, because I'm, I wouldn't be able to. And, and you, you know, conveying it. It's really great. And it's great that Jamie's on. I think that's one of the most important things, actually, is that Jamie gets to present his story, his words, they hear his voice, and the way you all do point exactly to wherever this is. You can find this here, you can find this here, we have this to back it up. Like Ellen said, that is very important, but you guys do just put it straightforward. And again, I think it's huge that Jamie is able to have the voice that he does on this, and there's no BS about it. Well, you can probably thank Ray for most of the, uh, the FOIA stuff. I mean, he's the one that the FOIA sensei, you know, <laughs> he's the one that knows how to, he's the one that knows how to work those, <laughs> work those FOIA requests so they can't talk their way out of them, so. Try pretty hard, though. The whole thing, Jamie, I think it's, the, the podcast has been very good because you know we've gotten more information from the podcast the listeners and we've connected a few a few reports that were missing 
We've connected a few names that we didn't know about before. And if I think it continues, I mean, what the Bloomington police did in the, in the beginning, they screwed up. And I'm not sure in any way you can correct their screw ups from the first time. But other information that they missed that we can gather, I think that's all positive. And I think that's just keeping, keeping people aware and keeping it in the news. And I think the podcast is partly responsible for the ruling on the discovery. I think it will push the DNA stuff. I think it's all good. You really think that, that the podcast has something to do with the ruling on the discovery? That's interesting. I've not thought about that. There's a lot of people. I don't know if you can keep track of what's on the podcast. You know, I'm not that savvy with the zooms and everything else. But there's a lot of people that, like me, I, I lurk. I don't say anything. I just listen and bomb what I can out of it and stuff like that. I think there's a lot of people listen to this and have opinions and for whatever reason haven't come forward you know we got people come forward just from talking and they said oh my brother-in-law did this and then we talked to the brother-in-law we know that's happening and uh i believe that whoever did the crime could very well be listening to the thing too i totally agree ray i think it's out there I agree. I think there are a lot of people that we don't even know about that are probably listening, including uh, people that are in law enforcement. Ray, do you remember when Charlie Crow called you? I do remember when I had my contact with Charlie Crow. <laughs> I don't think I'll have any more tell, with him. Why don't you tell us about uh, the day he called you? Well, I thought I could connect with Charlie Crow as like one old cop to another old cop. And there was some other information we had from one of the other investigators who went to visit him in person. And his wife had said something that Charlie was a little reluctant, uh, felt bad, that kind of a deal. And so I think Charlie Crow, like your gut feelings, Charlie Crow wasn't all that bad. But there is the blue line, what they say. Charlie Crow is retired from Bloomington Police Department. And Charlie Crow is not going to go in and want to say Bloomington Police Department screwed it up. He's not going to talk bad about the Bloomington Police Department cops. But he threatened me to never contact him, never write him, never call him again. <laughs> so Charlie and I aren't friends. You're a better friend to him than I am, Jamie. I send him a Christmas card every year, so. He hasn't written you back, I though. I mean, I wonder if that's a telltale sign. Well, I mean, I guess we'd have to do research on other cases. I know that Paul Cialino has said that people don't like to talk after a crime, you know, no matter who they are. But almost every single person in this case is just stonewalled. And I, I always think, well, if for Martinez, for example, he's never, ever, ever talked after he ID'd Jamie. So... Why won't he just say, yeah, that's the person I saw? What's the big deal? I don't understand if their testimony was truthful, why they would back off of that. Do you have No, it wasn't truthful. I, I don't know what it was that they used against him to get him to finally testify. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we're, unless he speaks up, we're never going to know. But there could have very well been a conversation where someone went to him and was like, look, when the police arrived on the scene, you were the only one there. So if it's not snow, we might have to start looking at you. 
we know that they use these strong arm tactics against a lot of these witnesses. So it's very possible that they could have pulled something. I absolutely don't think Dan Katz or Rick Marcus was above pulling something like that. So, I mean, who knows? Perhaps we're going to get our foot in the door again and we're going to be able to get Charlie on the stand and get him under oath and he won't have a choice. He'll have to answer questions and go with Danny and that's what we're shooting for right now. I mean, we're trying to get this budget testing done and we're trying to go through these documents and see how many grave violations are there. Perhaps we're finally going to get a, an evidentiary hearing. We're going to be able to get some of these people in here and make them testify. That would be a great day. <laughs> so long as you don't have Pickle as the attorney doing the questioning. <laughs> That'll be a great day to see an attorney from the Exoneration Project cross-examining these witnesses. Yeah. Can you imagine how good Warren is going to be or her call is going to be in, in the courtroom when they get to cross-examine from people? I just can't wait to see it. Mm-hmm. I just can't. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, my, my, my time is up. I'm going to have to go. I really appreciate all of you guys for uh, zooming in and being a part of this discussion. I appreciate all of the love and support that I get from all of you. And don't give up yet because I really believe the best is yet to come in 2022. And Leslie, I got your book last night. I used the dream book first thing this morning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Any more crazy dreams, Ellen, let me know because I got a book of interpretations now. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, anybody has any dreams you want interpreted? Let me know. I'm the dream interpreter. interpreter. That's awesome. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> all right, listen, I got to go. I appreciate yeah. all of you. I don't think I could make it without the uh, love and support that I get from you guys. And I, I don't just say that lightly. I absolutely mean it a million percent. It's what keeps me going. So I love you, Nicole. Love you too, then. By the way, Nicole, you're in the 1% of the world in that you were born with a crooked pinky finger. So I just found that out, too. So, you know. Oh, that's snow different. Babies, snow babies are born with crooked pinky fingers, and that uh, happens in less than 1% of the world population. So, I mean, that's something. So. That's really weird, because I'm looking at my finger right now, and it is still slightly crooked. <laughs> you well, kind of seem like not. a wizard at this you know, point. It probably uh, uh, straightened out, but when you were born, it was crooked. So. I don't know. It still looks a little crooked, so I'm a little creeped out right now. <laughs> all right. I got to go. I love you guys. I appreciate all of you. We love you, too. Bye. Right, talk to you tomorrow. Okay. Bye. See you. All right. Bye. The caller has hung up. Okay. I was thinking about what you said, Ray, that probably a lot more people listen than interact directly with the podcast. I just still remember when Escapa, at the very first Zoom hearing, he was like, ooh. There's a lot of people here. And I thought, yeah. And I think that might have made a difference as well, that people care. There's no doubt that people know about it. And like I said, the podcast is part of that. And it keeps it out there. And I think it's working. I think it's done stuff that we wouldn't have found otherwise. And as, as things keep coming up, we keep we haven't stopped. Tam found four years the other day for something. I'm not even real sure what it was. <laughs> Yeah, it's just amazing how much stuff keeps coming out. Doing something is better than nothing, right? Over the years, we've tried so, so many different things to get awareness to the case. And we've come a long way because when we started, there was not very much support in Bloomington for Jamie at all. But now that this information 
has come out. People are changing their views because it's new information to them. It's a 30-year-old case when you think about it. And she was also covering that journalist from both the hearing and also, what's her name? Edith Lunny. So that means that there's an audience and, you know, and if the article gets shared and people can Mm -hmm. read about it there as well, it, it helps. Yeah, everything that we can do to get attention to the case on our side. And it may not seem like we are, but we're very cautious. We're very careful about information that we see that hasn't been filed. I mean, we have extensive discussions about this because we're not interested in causing any harm for Jamie in court and the court proceedings. So we take it very seriously as far as following orders and following advice from legal counsel and those kinds of things. So we can't We can't always put out everything that we see or that we know, but that's only if it will cause harm to a witness or a potential witness or the case. There's still a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. We're in discussions about what we're going to do next. We'll be wrapping up the alternative suspects and we're going to go back and talk about these state actors, you know, this prosecutor and maybe one episode on each case, Alan Beeman and Donnie Whalen and Eric Drew and all of these people that were maliciously prosecuted by the same state's attorney. And you Mm -hmm. can just kind of see the MO there. I just know that if we keep pushing and don't let up, that it's it's just got to make a difference. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think everyone involved, it don't matter if it's a like or a share or I mean, we have patrons that are you know, doing great. Haven here is an, is an intern. I know a lot of people come up to Nicole and Amber locally and talk about the case. Do you think, Nicole, the view has changed a little bit in Bloomington since we started? Um, I think definitely, I wouldn't even say it's a little bit. I would say it's pretty significant from when I was younger. I feel like when I was younger, I had a lot of people coming up to me and just flat out saying he was guilty to my face, regardless of whatever I said. And now when people come up to me and they bring it up, I don't get that hesitance that I used to get because the majority of the time they say something positive. So the majority of the time now when people come up to me, I can't even count the last time that somebody came up to me and said something just flat out rude, which is a pretty big change from when I was like 15, (laughs) sadly. So I mean, I definitely see it. But I think also online, a lot of people seem more positive like whenever there's a news article or anything like that the comments tend to be pretty good mm-hmm. so I mean I definitely see a positive change and I feel like it's just starting you know I feel like we haven't even really got like the ball rolling yet so to see that big of change just at this point seems pretty promising it's really sad to me that a person any human being feels like they could walk up to a child of someone that's been convicted of a crime and spew hate as if you had anything to do with it, (laughs) you know? Yeah, that was definitely also my feelings as well. (laughs) I was kind of like, what in the world is wrong with you people? I would never do that to somebody. If I saw a child of like Jeffrey Dahmer or like some other serial killer, I wouldn't go up to them and just start being vicious you know I would just be like that's unfortunate and I would just go about my day it's a little weird people 
especially this town can be pretty catty. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm sure we've said this many times, but it's a big town, but it's very strongly small town vibes here. So people are pretty catty here, I would say. But I think definitely it's gotten a lot better. I think people are more they're more interested and I feel like they more want to be like a part of the situation. Kind of a pet peeve of mine is the amount of people that when they hear about my dad and they ask, oh, he's not out yet. That's a positive response, but it's also frustrating because it's not that easy. There's there's more that needs to be done, but it's still a positive view of the case, you know, so I don't I don't shame anybody who says that to me. It's just a little irksome. It is because you just wish that somebody would. I feel like somebody's got to know something if somebody from around there did it because we've been putting it out there for so long. It just seems like somebody would have come forward by now. Do y'all agree with that? I agree with that because of the simple fact that people like to talk. I think in this town with the way that everybody reacts to each other, if there was somebody that had went around and people knew, like more than a few people knew, I feel like it would be out at this point. Like there would be something to follow, some type of trail. I don't think it would be, it's not like we live in, Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's a smaller town. So I feel like people, if they knew somebody here that lived here that did it or lived around here, I feel like it would be more like easy to grasp. I feel like people would have talked about it. There would be more to follow, I guess. But it is possible. People do crimes and then they don't tell anybody. They just keep it inside themselves. So that's possible as well. That's just kind of the the worst part about this is that you can literally think of so many scenarios that would fit. Mm-hmm. It's just frustrating. It could be fear. I mean, recall they were trying to say that against all of those witnesses because the point was brought up that they were coming forward after all of this time. Oh, well, they didn't have any fear anymore. (laughs) You know, they they just all came up at the same time because all of a sudden every one of them didn't have any fear anymore. And I, I look at Jamie and I know Jamie and I just know that People weren't walking around scared to death of him. I mean, the dudes that testified against him had much harsher records than Jamie has. Much more violent, sexual predators. I never thought of Jamie as instilling fear. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's from anybody that I've family, friends, or family, nobody ever talks about him as being like this dark presence around people. So and it's kind of weird when you compare him to other people, and it seems like there were so many other options that would have made so much more sense because he's not a mean person. That's so important right there is he's not a mean person. Mm-hmm. Everybody makes mistakes and they do things they regret, but like at his core, and I think the majority of people that I've spoken with, if not everybody I've spoken with, have, nobody's ever told me he was a mean person. Kim, what kind of reputation did he have? Did he ever have a reputation for violence? Um, no, no, Jamie was, um, pretty much the life of the party. He was a fun loving guy. He was, he was not mean. And I think we can all agree that everything that happened at that gas station that night is the exact opposite of his MO period. The end. I'm just really frustrated about this situation. And it's not just Jamie. It's just a really good example of you have to solve the crime to prove someone 
was wrongly convicted because it's not that Jamie didn't do it, but they made a mistake. They viciously and wrongly prosecuted him and they broke the law. And still, that's not enough. It seems you have to solve the whole crime and the person who's innocent in jail for someone else. And I think that's so unfair and frustrating because there should be a million Brady violations. There are. In, in, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's just obvious because they were wrong when they prosecuted him and, and Tina Griffin knew and she lied and all of that. It's, it's just very obvious, I think. And I just can't believe that's not enough. And I know that people that have done this for a very long time and they're very well respected say that the crime has to be solved. But I've seen plenty of cases where it wasn't solved. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, in particular, what comes to mind is Alan Beeman's case. His crime wasn't solved for years and years and years and years and years. He pursued DNA testing and his case was overturned because evidence was hidden. And then after okay. that, and after that, that's when Jason Chambers just after that ruling, then Jason Chambers became the state's attorney, and it was all like right right in the middle there. And then Jason Chambers said, well, we're just going to test the DNA now. Mm -hmm. So they tested it, and it was uh, two unknown suspects, two people that they couldn't even identify. And the crazy part is that it was overturned based in part that they did not disclose an alternative suspect, which was her boyfriend that was very violent and they had a very violent relationship, very violent physical relationship. And that was their argument. Alan Beeman's argument was that y'all didn't even disclose the history of domestic violence between these two. And then they tested it and it was two unknown people. They don't know whose DNA that is on that alarm clock, <laughs> you know, and that's just crazy. About the evidence, I was wondering if way back I listened to, that might be a couple of the 10,000 because I listened to it several times with the testing of the bullet. And there was a later hearing, was it 11 or something, where someone was trying to say to argue on behalf of the state that it was continuously run through. That was Bill Workman. And he said that, yes, it had continuously been run through yeah. IBUS. And uh, we did a FOIA on that at the state level and the FBI. We got it back that that print had never been run through the national database. It was stopped. We have the police reports that say it was stopped. It was not run again. It has not been running continuously. And uh, we need to, you're right. We need to use that in court. We need to use that because we got the, transcript of that hearing for that very reason because he lied to the court where that was when yeah. uh, ASA Bill Workman who of course is now a judge in McLean County you know the, our circuit judge that they've all become judges um, except for one who became a U.S. attorney so everybody's been promoted that has fought DNA testing or fought Jamie's case. And it's always been, you know, they call him the first. Rigdon, who's now, he's the first. So you have the state's attorney and then you have the first assistant state's attorney. 
And then you have all of the other state's attorneys, always the first that's assigned to Jamie's case. It's crazy how hard they fight and how consistently they fight. And every single time they become a judge or get promoted. I wonder if that's why they're fighting now, because if Jamie's not in court, it won't come out. But he lied also about the blood sample. <laughs> Just send another one then. Oh, it's dried up. Oh, it's not. Things that does not seem possible. That's a really good thing we need to note. Leslie and Ray, we need to definitely address that issue. I know we went over it before, but when we're talking about the state actors and the prosecutors and what they've done and everything they've done to hide evidence and move it around and just to fight this case, we definitely need to highlight Workman's role in that. That was when Tara Thompson came on, the exoneration first came on, and she was trying to get all of this stuff tested. And then he said that kind of stuff. You know, he went and checked the evidence out. It was weird. I think we did an episode on the blood trail of yep. that, but that was weird. Like, I don't know why he checked everything out. There's so much that's in these documents. And again, maybe it'll be in the 8,000 documents, but there's so much that's so many gaps in it. It's like what happened. We're going to be covering Charles Renfro, which was, I remember when they did the lineup and he asked number, I think it was two and three. Charles Renfro was one of those to move forward. Danny Martinez. When you see his FOIA document that has the, the tip, and the information about the tip that came in about Renfro, and that has like four or five completely blacked out pages. Does that say how he was cleared? Probably not. <laughs> I don't think so. We don't know. Maybe it'll be in those documents, but that's the frustration with this case is that we don't know. And a lot of naysayers that are like, well, if you don't have all the documents, how do you know he's innocent? The absence and the redactions and the stuff that we found and put together over the years shows this terrible investigation and shows all of these other suspects. It just doesn't, it really doesn't make sense. Plus in 98, when all you see is Jamie, they didn't look mm -hmm. at anybody. Else. Those are all telltale signs of a wrongful conviction and the lies, the deals that were uncovered, the stuff that they didn't mean to come through, the FOIAs, the stuff that they accidentally let through. And you're like, well, wait a minute. They never said they had a deal. They never said they offered this guy anything. They never said they were talking to him back in 1994. They never said any of this. So if you don't believe he's innocent, at the least, you have to see that he's not had a fair trial. Yeah, that's a good point. That's something that I always say to people if they're unsure of whether or not he did it is I'm like, one thing we can't agree on is that he did not have a fair trial because of the fact that you don't have to believe in his innocence. But if you just look at the basic facts, you don't even have to get into everything because there's so much. But if you just get into the basics of it, no one can disagree that at least, at the very least, he didn't get that fair trial. And that's the whole point of the court system is everybody gets a fair trial regardless of who they are, where they come from. And test the DNA. If you think he's guilty, his DNA should be there. Exactly. It okay. should be there and cut clean and then everybody can move on from there if it was that easy. <laughs> but it's not, which is why they fight us at every moment because they know that it's not that clear cut or I'm sure 
if it was a clear cut and they were that confident, I am sure that the first time we asked, they would have been right there testing everything to prove us wrong. So I think they know. Paul Cialino has said a couple things over the years that have stuck with me. I know that when we did his interview, people are like, oh, wow, that many people couldn't have been lying. And when he asked how many people testified against him, the first thing he said was, wow, they must not have had any evidence at all. You know, exactly. if you had that many jailhouse informants, you had no evidence because it has been his experience over 30 years that that's who they bring up when they don't have any evidence. And the other thing that he said years ago was if they're fighting this hard against the DNA testing, they know it's not going to be there. They know what's there is what he thinks. Some people think that they have tested it at some point, like the blood sample was really crazy. He just says if they fight that hard against testing DNA, then there's definitely something wrong. So those mm -hmm. two things that he said has always stuck with me just because he has so much experience in wrongful convictions and actual investigation level. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I would think so. I mean, all the wrongful convictions I've seen, I think there are jailhouse informants in all of them. Like it's a telltale sign, a prosecution that does not have much to go on. It just is because they don't want to use them if they have anything else. Right. Why would you want to put up someone with such a lengthy record? And now we know there was a lot of issues with them. They had failed polygraphs. They've made deals. So there's a lot behind that now. And I'm positive Jamie's attorneys will uncover more as they go through the documents that have been sent that are unredacted. Are they still working on Jamie to have access to them? Yes. Right now, they're working on the logistics. I guess they're not really sure how, how they're going to ensure that those documents are not shared, how they're going to keep the chain of custody for those documents, because it's going to be under protective order. So they're going to have to work that out with the IDOC to see how it may be that he has to go sit in the law room with a law student, which would be unfortunate. It'd be better if he had him in his cell. But yeah, I think, you know, it would be quicker if he had it in his cell. Mm, but there's a lot to go through. It is, but whatever they do, I told Jamie, whatever they want to do, just do it. I know it's going to yeah. suck if you have to sit in that room all day, but the most important thing is to be able to see the documents and go through it and take notes because you know more than anybody. Exactly. He was there. On. Yeah. There. At the trial, he knows his mm -hmm. case. I think that Laura and Nicole are super duper awesome and everything, and I've been really impressed by them. But there's a lot, and Jamie's the one who knows the history, and he he knows what happened with the Terra and those court proceedings. So whatever is in there will make more sense to him, probably. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. If you have any information that may help Jane, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. 
The tip line is free and confidential. We want to thank everyone for joining us for the inaugural Snow and Tell Zoom discussion. We appreciate all of you more than you may ever know. And don't forget, peace and justice for Jamie Snow. Think it, say it, write it every single day. We'll see you next time on Snow Files.